Amen. Well, here we are tonight, uh, about to begin our study in the book of Romans. As you've heard over many weeks, I am personally very excited to begin a series in the book of Romans because, and Pastor Fisher can let you know if this is true, I, I believe every minister wants to preach through the book of Romans. So maybe in 20 years, Pastor Fisher will take you again through the book of Romans. I just believe that the book of Romans being so central to our faith, uh, such an important part of God's word, it it just, uh, for all of us, uh, is a desire that we have to preach uh, through the book of Romans. I think I heard this week as I was just looking at various things about the book of Romans that I think uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when asked by one of his parishioners, when will you preach through the book of Romans, said, I will preach through the book of Romans once I understand in my own life Romans chapter 6. It was shortly after that, a few years, that he began to preach, presuming by that time he understood at least in part how Romans chapter 6 fit into his own life. And so I am very excited to preach through this book. It is the fullest, I believe, and clearest exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you'll find in the Bible taken as a whole. If you read many commentaries written on Romans, you will hear that sentiment over and over again, that there is no clearer expression of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible that you will find systematically laid out as you do in this letter. In fact, if you're familiar with various ways of witnessing to people. Perhaps you've used this very uh, approach. There's a very famous approach in our witnessing to others who do not know Christ. It's called the Roman road. And you just take people through various verses of the book of Romans. And what's interesting is those verses actually appear in order as you take them through uh, the book of Romans and lead them eventually to Romans chapter 10, where we are told that when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you are saved. Um, And you do that from the beginning, Romans 1, all the way through. We can talk about that sometime if you've never used it. It's a great method to take people through the actual scriptures. You use just one book of the Bible, and we do that because Romans is so, so clearly expresses the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to do tonight what uh, almost every minister I know does, and that is we begin with an introduction. This is probably the least interesting part for most people as we look at the book, because we're not really going to go verse by verse in exposition as we begin in Romans 1. I am going to read in just a moment Romans 1, 1 through 17, because that is the introduction, and then next week in earnest we'll begin by looking more closely at Romans 1, 1 through 7. But there are two things I want to say as we begin our study. First of all, and don't be surprised by this, memorize the book of Romans. (laughs) I just asked you to do that with the book of Jude, one chapter. And you're looking at me saying, no, no, that's impossible. You can't possibly memorize the whole book of Romans. Well, you're kidding yourself. You can, actually, if you choose to do so. I know it's not one chapter like Jude, and no, my wife has not yet asked me to say this, as she did with the book of Jude. But there is good warrant to memorizing the book of Romans. 
Luther himself, who loved the book of Romans, spoke about the fact that in Romans we have pure gospel. And he commended that believers memorize it word for word by heart. Calvin also added to that commitment and sense when he noted, according to one commentator, that when we uh, study the book of Romans, when we memorize that book and hide it in our hearts, then we have a door open to all the treasures of the Bible. I think that is true. I think if you memorize the book of Romans, if you understand the book of Romans, as we hope to do so over the next uh, several weeks, months, years, then you will open a door to all the treasures of the Bible. So I'm not kidding. Memorize the book of Romans. Seek God's grace to do so. If you are uh, up to that challenge, you will be greatly blessed, and more importantly, you will be greatly changed because the word of God does not uh, simply sit there in our lives. It changes us. Second, I want to make a statement, I think, publicly about the recent changes and shifts we've made about uh, in our church regarding my now preaching in the evenings and Pastor Fisher now preaching in the morning, going through the pastoral epistles. You no doubt have received the letter that we sent out. You've read it, and the reasons for all of that are there. But some, nonetheless, having read the letter, have wondered and asked me whether I will be retiring soon. Well, you know I'm not because I'm too young to retire. Is this just a step in the direction, Pastor, that's going to come sooner than later? Well, let me just say this. I'm beginning a series in the book of Romans. (laughs) What is arguably the most significant and important single book in the Bible It took Dr. Boyce, a mentor of mine, eight-plus years to go through the book of Romans. If there's anything that speaks to job security and longevity, it's preaching through the book of Romans. So God willing, I'm not going anywhere soon. Of course, I have no plans, never did have any plans. The reasons for these changes were put out clearly in that letter. I don't have any plans after the book of Romans, according to my plans, but we'll see where God leads. So let's make a beginning then as we study Romans chapter 1. Just by way of introduction, I'll ask you to stand as is our practice. I'm going to read all 16 chapters. If you stand and listen, I'm kidding. Don't. I couldn't avoid that. I just could not avoid that. We did that with Jude, of course, one chapter. I'm only reading verses 1 through 17. I already told you that. So let's give our attention then to God's word. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All grass is as, all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that this word, given by you, our great God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul and his life, is a word that will stand forever. It will never fade away, but it is a truth upon which we lay our lives and give our hearts to that we might know you, and that we might know your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for this is eternal life. And we pray, Father, that you would grant us these things according to your will, and by the power of your Spirit, through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The late R.C. Sproul a wonderful mentor uh, for many of us at a distance through his ministry, Ligonier Ministries, through his teachings and the ongoing work of that ministry, said on many occasions, everyone, everyone, without exception, is a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. The word theology in its root means uh, the study or the science of God. It is made up of two Greek words, theos meaning God and logi meaning science or study of. So it is the study of God. When you think of words like biology, it's the study of living things. When you think of anthropology, anthropos, the Greek word for man or mankind or humanity, it is the study of things related to humanity or to mankind. Dr. Sproul's point was that everyone studies God or knows about God. You will either do that well, he would say, or you will not do it well, according to God's own revelation. Now, that kind of idea that we are all theologians actually comes from the beginning of Romans chapter 1, where we read that all of mankind is indeed accountable to God because all of mankind knows about God. God has revealed himself in creation all around you. But some, being good good theologians, the study of God, have known his attributes in creation and by his grace have pursued a further knowledge of God that we have written in this his word or his special revelation. 
But there are many bad theologians. Bad theologians, according to Paul, is that there are men and women, young people today, who see all that creation reveals about God, but they have suppressed that knowledge and understanding, and they have become instead fools. We're going to talk about those things as we study those verses, especially beginning in Romans 1.18. And so in this way, in many other ways, all of us, without exception, are theologians. My hope, of course, in the study of this book is that we would be together good theologians, not only recognizing in creation what God has revealed to us, not suppressing it, deeply within our hearts, ignoring it and rejecting it, but rather receiving the testimony of God, his goodness, his nature, his character is revealed in creation, but then studying this book together, becoming good theologians regarding what God has revealed in his word. You see, if we are going to know God at all, he must first, of course, reveal himself. That is a necessity. We are so separated from God that Uh, Apart from him revealing himself, we can never know him, and he has revealed himself. And so our goal is to know him better through the study of this book, as it is true any time we study God's word. The book of Romans really is the clearest and fullest expression of the revelation of God that God has been pleased to put down in writing. It is the Apostle Paul's greatest letter It is his systematic theology written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's why every pastor wants to preach and teach through it. It's a book or a letter that if we know it well by his grace, we will be excellent theologians for we will know God. And here's the danger, but the encouragement as well. If we know God, we will be changed by him because that's what he does. And so there are three main questions I want to look at tonight by way of introduction. Again, this is a very common way. I think every commentator I've read has done this in the beginning. And it's really important because there are things here in these beginning uh, sections that we need to understand. By understanding these things, we'll have, I believe, a better understanding of the book itself. So... Who is the author? That's the first question we're going to ask. Who is the author? Some of this is going to sound somewhat familiar. Pastor Fisher asked me after this morning's service, uh, you know, are you going to talk about the same things? Because we're sort of in the beginning of books and studies. I said, well, not really, but there were some overlap and there was some overlap. So tonight, who is the author? Very little debate on the author. Paul introduces himself in the very first word. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. You remember some of those things from this morning, and so Paul is the author of this. But I think it's important to know that and to understand how that impacts our understanding of the whole book. Paul was not always Paul, of course. You know his story. He began as Saul of Tarsus. He was a very well-educated man, not only in the world in which he lived, but also under the teaching, as he himself tells us, of the esteemed teacher Gamaliel. So Paul was well-trained. He himself gives his own pedigree in Philippians chapter 3 of how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, with respect to the law, spotless, etc. But but this Saul, as he began his life, as he studied and grew in knowledge and understanding, was also involved in the persecution of Christians. 
You see him first in Acts chapter 7 in the stoning of Stephen. Uh, He was there complicit in participating in the the stoning of Stephen and his eventual death. And then two chapters later, we meet him on the road to Damascus as he is arrested by God, uh, by Jesus himself who calls out to him. Again, you heard some of that this morning. His conversion is recorded there. He'll repeat that conversion story several times in his missionary travels as he meets and interacts with various people. And then I mentioned Philippians 3 as his pedigree, his uh, statement that he was the best of the best with respect to the law, etc. What this tells us, as you think about all that Romans is going to do and, un, uh, and lead us into as far as understanding, that Romans is really Paul's own story. As we trace through the book of Romans in the beginning from what Paul establishes, that all mankind are guilty before God, and that neither Jew or Greek are excused before God's presence, whether you have the law and you fail to keep it, meaning the Jewish people, or you don't have the law but fail to obey the law of God written on your heart, you are still guilty. This was true of the apostle Paul. His story is in the book of Romans. In fact, by the time we get to Romans 7, he's going to sort of become very vulnerable and reveal his own personal struggle with sin. As he just talked in Romans 6 about sanctification and growth in grace. He's going to talk about the struggle, his own personal struggle after his conversion with the presence, the remaining presence of sin in his life. And so knowing that Paul is the author And knowing what we do as we read through Acts and his own letters, who this man really was, Romans then, in my mind at least, becomes the story of the Apostle Paul. His own conversion, his own transformation from a sinner in need of God's grace to one who has received that grace, who stands now in no condemnation before the Lord, who has been set free and made at peace with God, All of that is Paul's own reality. It's his own testimony, if you will, of his own life. And it becomes the pattern, which is why it's central to our understanding of the gospel, becomes the pattern of every believer's life after that. So Paul being the author is a simple point, but it really does reveal, uh, as he writes this, that he's really writing his own story. And I hope to make that point throughout as we move through our study. So that's the simple part of this. Paul is the author. There really is no argument that can be made against Paul being the author of this letter, uh, despite attempts that have been in the past. Now, who is the audience? To whom is the letter written? Well, after a fairly lengthy introduction in the first six verses, you see in verse 7, to all of those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's who he's writing to, the church of Jesus Christ at Rome. But here's the problem. Not really a problem, but uh, it's a number of curious questions. Paul never, according to his own writing here, Paul never visited the church at Rome. He was never part of the planting of the church in Rome. He himself, again, was never there. There is absolutely no evidence that any of the other apostles ever made it to Rome. 
not Peter, regardless of what the Roman Catholic Church might say or teach. There's no evidence that Peter went to Rome, that he founded the church at Rome. None of the other apostles are mentioned as being there either. So how did they get a church? How did they have believers who were meeting in such a way and recognized, as the verses I've read earlier with respect to their witness and their faith being proclaimed in verse 8, in all the world. They were well known. But how did that happen? Well, if you think back to your history of the book of Acts especially, it is most likely, and there's some disagreement here, but I don't think it can be denied that this is the most sensible answer as to how they got uh, to be a church in Rome, is that there were visitors that day on the day of Pentecost during Peter's first sermon. The text tells us in Acts chapter 2, and they, that is the crowd, hearing Peter and the others speaking in tongues, that is languages recognized by those who were present, were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's the most likely answer is that these visitors, as Luke records it, visitors from Rome in verse 10 of Acts chapter 2, who became believers during that day of Pentecost, returned to Rome and began assembling together, meeting together, and would have simply grown as they understood more and more what God was calling them to do into this body of believers that had become well-known, their faith throughout all the world, And Paul now, knowing what Rome is in his current world, in that day and age, the center of the whole world, desired to write and did write a letter to them, commending them and laying out for them the very gospel that he has been called to preach. So it's there. It's a church. We don't know its leaders. We really don't, although... In a moment, we'll talk about some of the possible leaders that would have been there. Most commentators believe that Paul would have written this letter uh, during the mid part of the 50s AD. It seems that uh, putting all of the travels of Paul and his missionary journeys in Acts, it seems that, and most agree, that he would have written it during a three-month stay that we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 20. It says that because of the people who are mentioned And just the context of his travels, it seems that that's the most likely time that he would have written this letter from Corinth while he was visiting there. Uh, After he had spent some 18 months prior to that, according to Acts chapter 18, during his additional visit, later in Acts chapter 20, he would have likely written this letter. Now, another interesting question with respect to the audience is, Who made up the church? Were they mainly Jewish? Were they mainly Gentiles? I think it's without question that in the beginning, because of those visiting during Pentecost, they would have mainly been made up 
of Jewish converts, those who had come to profess and believe in Jesus Christ. But no doubt being Rome, as the gospel would have gone out in that city and beyond, there would have been God-fearers and Gentiles who would have come in by the work of God's grace, who were converted to faith in Jesus Christ, who would have been part of the church as well. Now, perhaps in the very beginning, um, especially as you consider what happened on Pentecost and historically what Acts tells us in chapter 18 regarding a particular historical event, perhaps there was a time in the beginning, Jew and Gentile, but by about 49 AD, when Paul records in Acts 18 that Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, That would be the year and a half time. And he says, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. So that's a little interesting tidbit. It's about probably six to seven, eight years prior to his writing to the Romans where the church would have been of necessity primarily, if not exclusively, Gentiles. Because all of the Jews were commanded to leave in 49 AD. And so there are questions, as you think about uh, the purpose of the letter, there are questions as to why Paul is writing and why he's writing what he's writing in the book of Romans. Some of it may, as we'll see in a moment, relate to this reality. In the beginning, primarily Jews, then Gentiles, but by 49 AD, all the Jews are kicked out. What's really interesting is by the end of the book of Romans, so around 55, 56, at the very end, he says, give my greetings to Aquila and Priscilla, who are back in Rome. Now, they're Jews, but they're back in Rome. And so there's a lot of migration happening, some in God's providence caused by Claudius and others who are expelling the Jews, some just natural movement. But it seems to be a church primarily made up of Jews with Gentiles added as well. And that's clear in the letter as we go through Paul's arguments, especially in the beginning, making sure he understands that both Jew and Gentile have no excuse before God have no excuse at all, that makes sense as well. So that's a sense of who the audience is. I think that will come up as we go through our study more and more. So the third question, what is its main teaching? What does Romans primarily teach? Now again, there are lots of answers to this that people offer as we think of its main theme. Unlike many of the letters that Paul wrote, and we have them in our Bible, we don't really see, clearly at least, a problem that's happening and going on in the church. It doesn't seem to be a corrective uh, as a letter. It doesn't seem to be correcting some heresy or false teaching. It doesn't seem to be correcting, like in Philippi, the, the contention that was going on between believers and Paul had to write. It's certainly not like Corinthians, first or second letter that had all these super apostles coming in, leading the people astray, and the church itself was so troubled, so many problems that Paul was responding to. And and it doesn't seem to be like Galatians, where there was such a divide between Jew and Gentile, so that Paul had to write this 
letter as he did to the Galatians to correct and to straighten out that problem. There seems to be no clear problem, again, in the book of Romans. Now, again, there may be some issues between Jew and Gentile. That would have been very common in the entire church in Paul's day because of what God was doing, according to Ephesians, uh, bringing in the Gentiles, joining them together with the Jews, making one body in Christ. That had sort of natural uh, problems with it, as Jew and Gentile would have struggled against one another as to who they really were. But, but God was revealing that in Christ they were all the same. They were one body. Well, if that's true in, in some small way, it's certainly not true in the main message of the book of Romans. This is not the dominant reason that Paul would write this letter. I like what one preacher said as uh, I was uh, reading this week uh, when he's looking at this letter, thinking of possible reasons uh, why he would write this letter. Uh, He says, and at least posits, that Paul is writing, if you look at the very end, chapter 15 and 16, He's talking about how he wants to come and visit them in Rome. And then he says, I want to do that, but from Rome, I want to go to Spain. So Paul has in his mind, and no doubt the Lord led him in this, clearly, that he wants to take the gospel, having taken it really to the east of Rome. He now wants to take it westward to places like Spain, to places like Europe that we know uh, today And so he, he says, and it's humorous, I think, he says this is almost like a missionary support letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, saying to them, listen, I'm coming. You know, part of the context of this is uh, Paul is, is taking to Jerusalem the offerings that he's collected in Macedonia. And, and as he does that, and after that, he says, I want to come from Jerusalem to Rome and then from Rome to Spain. So basically, I'm looking for support that the gospel would go on. Now, most of us believe, and I think you would agree, um, as you read the book of Acts, it ends with Paul in prison. Most of us believe historically that Paul would have been released from prison. He would have made it to Rome, and then he likely would have made it to Spain in taking the gospel. That's what most commentators believe. But this is before that ever happens, and Paul is laying out his intent. Now, as a side note, I remind you again, many of our members who are going to Armenia this July are raising support. They really are. They've sent letters out to those that they know, and they've asked the church as well. So I remind you, if you're able to give, please give. It was no shame for Paul to do that, so it's no shame for us as well to ask that the Lord's people would give to support the work of missions. Well, what do we say by all of this? That's not the main reason that Paul would write this letter, of course. It's not ultimately a missionary support letter, but it's interesting to think about. What is it then? I think there is one clear answer, and I think it's in verse 1. If you look at verse 1, we're not going through it this week, but it's important to point this out. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. That really is what Paul's writing this letter about. He is setting out the gospel of God for the Roman church. He summarizes that as most commentators recognize the great theme of this book. It's in verses 16 and 17. It is the theme of justification. 
How is it that a man and a woman, a young person, can have a right standing before God? It is through the righteousness that God has wrought in Jesus Christ. An alien righteousness to us, imputed or given to us as we just confessed earlier, the righteousness of Jesus Christ for sinners. That is what Paul is laying out. He is setting forth the gospel of God. Think back to our book, our study in Jude, one chapter. Remember Jude's original intent? I desire to write to you, brothers, beloved, to essentially rejoice in this salvation which was ours in Christ. He didn't do that because of the need to warn the people to contend for the faith. This is the faith they were to contend for, and this is Paul doing what Jude wanted to do rejoicing in, celebrating, laying out clearly what is the gospel of God. Now that language is important. It is the gospel of God, which another way of saying it, it is God's gospel. It's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. He is the originator of it. He is the doer of it. He is alone the one who will bring it to pass And he has done so in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. What this book is all about is his story or history, right? That's how we say it. History is his story. Notice even in the beginning, he sets it in the historical context when he says the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy scriptures. This book is just simply setting forth in a systematic, clear way the good news, the gospel, the good news of God for sinners like you and like me. How important then is it for us to study? Why is it that every minister wants to expound this book? Because it's simply expounding the gospel of God. And that is our greatest joy and pleasure as those who are called to be ministers of that gospel, as Paul himself was. And so the goal of this study as we move forward is to know God, to know him perhaps for the first time. If you're here tonight and continue to come, uh, you would say, I don't really know God. Well, the goal of this study and the goal of this book is that you might come to know him to know him as he is, as he revealed himself in his word and through the gospel, which is his good news to sinners like you and like me. If you are a Christian, the goal is the same, to know him better than you do now as you sit here this evening. And again, remember, to know God, to really know God, as we will know him in the book of Romans, because it's all about him and his good news to us. To know him really is to be changed, is to be made different, because that's what happens with the gospel. It makes us different people. That's been the testimony of history, hasn't it? Many of you are familiar with the stories of how this book has been central in the lives of so many famous people who have lived. Many of you have read Augustine's Confessions. You've read of his own conversion He was, as you know, a brilliant mind, a philosopher, but he was equally famous for his ungodly life. 
One day, when he was walking in a garden area, he heard the sound of children playing the game. I don't know what the game was, but it had a phrase that the children would say, tole lege, which is over and over again saying, take up and read. Augustine, in God's providence, heard those words and took up the book that he had, and he let the book fall open. I don't recommend that as a practice. Be orderly in your Bible reading, but he just let it fall open. And as he did, his eyes came upon a text, and he read it. The text was, of course, from the book of Romans. Not chapter 1 or 2 or 3 or 4, but chapter 13. And this is what those verses said. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That was God's miraculous providence because that's what his life was all about, orgies and sensuality and morality. But here he was told on to put the Lord Jesus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those words, by his own testimony, were like a light flooding into his soul. And he was never the same afterwards. And he became one of the world's greatest theologians, a good theologian at that. And surely you've heard after him the impact that this book had on a monk in Germany during the 16th century, a man named Martin Luther. You know, Luther was burdened and overwhelmed by his deep awareness of his sin. He could find no peace at all, no assurance that he had true salvation. One evening that when he was preparing the next day to give his lectures, as he did every day, he was reading in Romans and God opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel, especially as he read those verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1. That night changed the entire course of his life, and it changed church history. Romans would later become known as the Book of the Reformation. But for Luther personally, it would mean that he had finally, finally found hope and peace in the gospel of God. He would later write, when I understand this, when I understood this text, the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. He was a man changed that God would then use to change the church and the world. The doctrine of justification by faith, which is the doctrine of verses 16 and 17, by faith alone, the central theme of this book, would become the doctrine upon which the church would stand or fall. And then there's John Wesley, less known to us perhaps, but equally famous in the church world, if you will. He would also be changed as he came to sit in God's providence in the church in Aldersgate. He listened to a sermon from the book of Romans, and he was powerfully converted, famously saying that he felt his heart strangely warmed. He would later write in his diary, I felt I did trust in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's language right out of Romans, the law of sin and death. He had that assurance, that confidence, because God, by his word and spirit, brought it to him. There are many others, many others throughout history whose lives have been impacted by this book. 
both well-known and less well-known ordinary men and women and children who have become followers of Jesus Christ, who have heard the gospel of God and whose lives have been changed forever. My simple hope as we begin, as I know for Pastor Fisher is the same as we preach through any part of God's word, my simple hope and prayer is that we would all be changed by our study together. By the blessing of God, no matter where we are now, that he would use the words of the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to do what Paul himself says is God's ultimate purpose and aim as he seeks to make us more like Jesus, that we would no longer be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let us pray. Father, we have only made a beginning and only by way of introduction into this book, but we sense as we review these broader issues that this book is a marvelous testimony of your gospel, the good news that you have given through Jesus Christ to sinners like us. And for every person here tonight, there is nothing more important that we need to hear than the good news of God the gospel that belongs to him and that he has accomplished and finished in the person of his son. And so teach us as we move forward in the weeks to come. Be our teacher by your spirit and continue to cause us to rejoice in all that you have done and all that is ours in Jesus Christ. For we pray and ask this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.